Welcome back to Women on Set. Welcome to Women on Set. This is Eden Carter. And I'm Sarah Bola. And we're here for our last mandatory episode. Yeah, last required one by class. Uh, just as a disclaimer, we try our best on the, uh, in our podcast series. We are human and we make a lot of mistakes and um, being sensitive to all listeners is a continued education. So please let us know if we've said anything to offend you. If we're using language that makes you uncomfortable, please tweet at us, uh, private message us. Just let us know um, how we can improve. Uh, yeah, we're always willing to learn. Uh, we're at womanonsetwpg or womanonset.wordpress.com, and there's a contact form on there. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's our fifth episode. Uh, oh, we don't have a commercial. Um, so not all of you happen to live in Winnipeg, but if you do happen to live in Winnipeg, there is a uh, Winnipeg Film Group member screening happening November 25th, and uh, a film I helped edit will be in there called Picture Day 2002, so please check it out if you get a chance. And so this episode was brought to you by the Winnipeg Film Group. <laughs> um, so the subject of this week's episode will be Sofia Coppola, and that's a big subject to cover. Mm-hmm. There's also work there that we're happy, we're excited to talk about. Um, we'll have some recommendations for you at the end. Oh, but... First, um, uh, last week we discussed Reed Reed Murano. Uh, She has done The Handmaid's Tale, uh, cinematography for Skeleton Twins, and her directorial debut for a feature uh, was Meadowland, which you can watch on Netflix. So check out our last episode if you're curious about her. So this happened. So for this week, So This Happened, uh, we are going to talk a little bit about Lena Dunham and what came out on Twitter and then what the backlash was. Yeah, so the latest uh, Lena Dunham universal hate thing has been uh, that she... uh, So an actress, Aurora Perenu, had made uh, accusations of sexual assault against Marie Miller, who was a writer for the TV show Girls that Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor um, headed. And um, the, the Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor wrote an article on their like online media outlet, Letter Lenny, and it was basically siding with Marie Miller and being like, sadly, we know from insider knowledge that this is one of 3% of rape accusations that are false, which it, is pretty shitty. Well, so the quote was, while our instinct is to listen to every woman's story, our insider knowledge of Marie's situation makes us con confident that sadly this accusation is one of three percent of assault cases that are misreported every year which is alarming for someone like lena dunham to come out and say uh, i feel like this was a reactional post." well i mean you can't really say that because she wrote it with jenny and then they published it in this lenny newsletter that they put out every month um and so clearly there was conscious effort there was editing of this article and it was put out there with some intention it wasn't just a reactional tweet so this is pretty frustrating because lena dunham has been an advocate for victims for a long time she's shared a lot of input about her own experiences as a victim herself and she's just been a huge player in like we need to think about the victims here yeah as um also his boss because she's not just a close personal friend she was his boss as a writer of the tv show girls i don't think it's necessarily necessarily her place to comment on it because it's it's different if she had, was there the night of and has some sort of alibi, but it's more likely that she's just a close personal friend kind of being like, I've known this person for years and he's a good person, so this is impossible, and that's really frustrating because that's not cool. It's certainly what it sounds like. I, I know that there is a sense of like, well, we don't know the information for sure. We can always say that we can never say for sure whether or not she's right or wrong in terms of facts. But uh, if we think about it from a perspective 
of she is a brand. She is not only just a human being that is like reacting, she's also a company. And so from a company perspective, it doesn't make any sense like from a PR perspective, it doesn't make any sense to come out and be like, uh, I don't believe this rape victim. <laughs> I don't believe this person. Uh, even if personally, internally, she has information that leads her to believe otherwise, it doesn't make any sense for her as a public figure to come out and say that. What we were laughing about earlier is I was like, I just, if I think about her as a brand, I think about Beyonce and I think like Beyonce would never do this. Like Beyonce wouldn't do that. Beyonce would never do <laughs> no, this. No, because like from a PR perspective, it doesn't make any sense for you to come forward and say something as like potentially problematic as... I don't necessarily believe this woman. I not only necessarily believe, but like she accused her of being the wrong 3%. If you compare anyone to Beyonce, the world's just going to be like a sad place. No one compares <laughs> to Beyonce. Yeah. And this is super frustrating for me because I always sort of stick up for Lena Dunham. I know that a lot of people like to jump on the bandwagon if she's crappy because she is a hip- like a hypocrite because blah 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 and for me I always think she's human I like that she's honest I think that she has a lot of great perspectives for sure she's flawed but I think that usually she acknowledges her flaws and I really like a lot of the work that she puts out she's some of her girls episodes were really influential Mm -hmm. for me American Bitch was an episode that I thought was something that like screamed this needed to be on TV so long ago like this problem is so real and relevant and um it's frustrating to think that from her perspective like from her as this figure that I've idolized as a woman who can write about women's perspectives in a way that's genuine and authentic and feels real. Yeah. And it's expansive. It's deep. There's like all the different elements and and conflictions that women have to face. And then for her to come out and just blanketly say, like put out this blanket statement, like this woman's lying and my guy colleague is innocent. uh, I just think that that's pretty shocking. Mm hmm. It's not cool. There was another part of the story that, um, oh yeah, Lenny Letter, um, one of the writers, uh, Zinzi Clemens, um, in response to the whole incident, she's actually resigned from writing for the outlet and is like taken to Twitter saying it's time for all women of color to boycott Lena Dunham, basically. And part of it was this incident, obviously, but also uh, she was accusing um, hipster racism in Lena's like friend group, which uh, is like a new term people are picking up like wildfire because who like anything with hipster and a hipster racism is an interesting uh, concept it's basically like people who think they're allowed to be like use irony and like the jokiness of it to make like basically racist comments or which, like assuming that people understand it's a joke and so therefore it's yeah like i'm so hipster that like obviously this is a joke you're taking it so sensitively you should be more edgy like me like that that's a very good way to put that that because i've definitely seen that happen yeah and um, yeah, it, she is very strongly worded saying that she thinks that all women of color, that it is their time to divest from Lena Dunham. It makes sense. I completely understand. But um, I, it, that's pretty strong wording and, and quite a strong statement to make. So it'll be interesting to see what happens from now on. Um, I do. I have heard Lena Dunham be accused of slightly, um, not racist tendencies, but like, Having no filter and, like, not being very conscious of what you say and inconsiderate. Well, and even, like, girls as a TV show, I mean, for sure, like, Lena Dunham is a white woman. She's writing from her perspectives. It's clear that, like... She knows she's privileged. Well, and if you know anything about her life, like, a lot of her work is autobiographical. And so she's just writing from those perspectives. But it is interesting to think that girls wasn't very inclusive in terms of race or, like, diversity. Like, all of these people were from a very specific demographic which is white and middle class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> her and her colleague put out an apology for their article in Len- Lenny Letter and um, said that it was a completely wrong time to make that kind of a statement, that it was uh, like inappropriate, that it was uncalled for. And I mean, 
yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. I think their apology is sort of falling off on deaf ears right now. Everybody's really excited to just jump on the bandwagon and hate Lita Dunham. I don't <laughs> think that maybe that's the answer. I don't think that being I don't think that jumping on any bandwagon and drowning out any voice with overwhelming lashback ever teaches us anything. I think it's just important for us to continue to talk about this. Like this is this should just pr- provoke more discussion surrounding the issues regarding sexual assault and rape and victim blaming and all that stuff. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that the way that there have been so many responses to like actual like sexual assault accusations, people also need to have responses to when they get like um like accused of being inconsiderate or racist or um victim blaming and their responses are kind of like um also under scrutiny and people end up criticizing them a lot and there's a whole concept of double downing but i think like the responses are starting to get better and better like we were discussed last week how louis ck's response although not perfect by any means was like better than some other responses out there so hopefully like how the fact that this happens twice a year that lena dundum does something that everyone's like you have done wrong apologize hopefully she's just you know getting better at it and more having more of a filter Mm -hmm. and i think that i think that this is a moment for us to consider discussion i do i completely agree with uh, the fact that we need to be paying attention to victims we need to be siding with victims when it comes to a court case we can't always rely on super substantive evidence and so we need to be sensitive to the fact that most women have come out and made these really vulnerable um, statements and then been ignored or been shunned or been slut shamed or whatever Um, it's really important that we sort of try and reverse that and and come forward from a place that protects these victims but it's not wrong to say that we should be having a thorough discussion about every situation Um, I don't want to start talking about men's rights or about any rights of anybody who's been accused of anything because that's not what we're here to talk about but I do think that it's important that we continue to have like intelligent conversations about it rather than just jumping and screaming about a certain position there's there's never going to be productive growth as a society when we just jump on any bandwagon one way or the other and just sort of like drown each other out I guess Lena Dunham is joining that group of people where it's like we love your work but you're a bit difficult to deal with (laughs) yeah again it's frustrating because I really love her uh, perspectives. I think that for me, seeing her naked in a sex scene on TV that was just supposed to be sex and it wasn't supposed to be glorified and it wasn't supposed to be overly romantic <laughs> and it wasn't supposed to be um, idolizing her as this unreachable, beautiful figure that like isn't even a real woman. It was just supposed to be like tangible and visceral and real and awkward and uh, rough or soft or whatever it was. And all of these things were just so relevant to me and I was so grateful to finally see them on screen and you feel sort of more comfortable being yourself because you see her being so human you know Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that she's done a really good job of making us all feel good in her own skin and it's really unfortunate that she then has sort of come out with statements that reverse some of the progress that she's making in our in our society yeah anyway (laughs) good luck with that Lena Dunham we'll see how you how you you figure this one out Uh, this has been so this happened Hashtag so this happened. (laughs) Um, So we might as well dive right into Sofia Coppola. We have a lot to talk about. You're not even old enough to know how bad life gets. Obviously, doctor. You've never been a 13-year-old girl. For relaxing times, make it Centauri time. Oh, Leonard. You're the best. It's not too much, is it? I hope you like apple pie. Is that my recipe? It is. Mm-hmm. Uh, this woman is 46, the second woman to ever win uh, 
Best Director at Cannes, and she won this year for The Beguiled. And she was the third woman to ever be nominated for Best Director at the Academy Awards. Um, there's only four women in total who have ever been nominated, so that would make sense. Yeah. And uh, she was the first woman to ever win Best Original Screenplay. Oh, she was? Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Yeah, she won that for Lost in Translation. Mm-hmm. So um, we just watched The Beguiled. So The Beguiled was made in 2017. Uh, it is the movie that Sofia Coppola won Best Director for at Cannes Film Festival. And it is about an unexpected arrival of a wounded soldier uh, at a girl's school in Virginia during the American Civil War. Can I get you anything? Give me the key. You know I'd get in trouble for that. Before I say anything, what do you think, Sarah? <laughs> it was interesting. It's like a definitely a period piece, and like I have to be in the right mood for a period piece. Uh, I feel like the trailer almost gave too much away, but you kind of it's it's a remake of like a movie which is based off a book. So some people already kind of know what happened if they've seen the Clint Eastwood movie. The re- reason Sofia Coppola wanted to remake it, although she like went back to the source material um, to make sure it's not just a straight remake. It's from the woman's perspective more. That's why it's very like interesting because it's a woman remaking something that's kind of focusing on this man character based on a book that's written by a man so lots of interesting gender dynamics going on which is probably the best part of the movie um the (laughs) i love Elle fanning and uh kristen dunst and uh i really like nicole kidman lately what she's been doing with killing of a sacred deer and in this one too um, have you seen that already? Yeah. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like similar almost in that she's like head of a family, but she shows less power. And anyway, we're not talking about killing of a sacred deer. That's a whole other thing. But uh, <laughs> um, I like her in this uh, matriarch figure like uh, and how Colin, uh, Fer- Colin Farrell's character kind of tries to take her power and the, I love the power dynamics there. And also groups of women. Like, Sofia Coppola seems to be fascinated with how groups of women interact with each other. And also how, like, throwing in a man into the equation changes that dynamic. Because they all suddenly go, like, boy crazy. And, um, yeah. Um, yeah, I actually really liked the movie. I didn't know what to expect when I was... I, to be honest, I wasn't very interested in watching it. When I saw the trailer, I thought, oh, that looks, like, kind of interesting. But... I just wasn't, I didn't look at it and think, yeah, I have to see that movie. And I also didn't really see from the trailer how it was going to be very reminiscent of any of her other work. And I was, by the end of the movie, I was like, yeah, this is Sofia Coppola. This is so Sofia Coppola. And um, I think what brought that out was the sensitivity. There's so much subtlety in this movie. There's so many subtle elements that really make it feel rich. I felt like it was so well acted and each character had a sort of, each character, even though they were all dressed the same, they speak very similar, they're all living the same life with the same routine, uh, and they all had very different personalities. They had very specific sort of spirits to them, and, and when you saw them on screen, they all took up space in a different way, and I thought that that was really interesting. And then uh, Colin Firth, or Colin Firth, Colin Farrell was really great, uh, and bringing it, him in totally, I, I felt like there was a really, I had a tangible reaction to most of the things going on, even though they were subtle. And I was quite captivated for most of the movie. Um, yeah, it's not as long as I expected. Like, a period piece like that would go on for, like, two and a half hours mm-hmm. nowadays, but this is only, like, an hour and a half. Yeah, and then Nicole Kidman's performance was really striking. She was 
portraying all sorts of um she was slightly manipulative she was slightly uh like um accusatory there was like a lot of guilt throwing around uh there was a definite sense of dogma and then also like an insecurity and a vulnerability there that was definitely visible and watching her watching each one of them come towards Colin Firth and Colin Farrell (laughs) watching each one of them come towards Colin Farrell and uh sort of respond differently and tell us about their character and their history um with that was really really interesting and I just thought by the end this story of women it was I really loved it and I I was totally misled by the trailer the trailer to me meant this was a thriller this was going to be gory and rapey and uh like there was going to be a lot of things that weren't really the same in the movie that they were in the trailer for me yeah like the gore isn't too gory and the rape is like well it's pretty rapey but it's like a such a small part of the movie but also the rape is like okay so there is one scene that we're talking about specifically and it's it's initiated by the woman who comes to his room, she wants to do this, but then the way that he o- overwhelms her seems like he's taking the power away from her. So she comes in and clearly wants something, and it was difficult for me to understand her perspective there. I was having a hard time understanding if she was doing it because she was overwhelmed by just wanting what she had been originally promised, or if she was trying to bring him back from a sort of rageful, like this raging state, like where he's just overwhelming the house with violence and and reaction and maybe she's just trying to give him power back as a man and make him feel cared for i think she also wants to take her power back because the, one of the other girls um kind of had a sexual encounter with uh, colin farrell's character so she wants to like kind of want like up the ante and like have her own so that she can like claim him as hers or you know what i mean mm-hmm. i love that sofia coppola gives women this mystique and this you have this sense of wonder when you're watching the movies about each character. It's so obvious that Sofia Coppola is an, obser- an observer and she understands really well what what we find interesting in other people and what is valuable in other people's sort of idiosyncrasies and, and special qualities. And so in all of her movies, I feel myself stepping back and taking pause and really sort of absorbing the characters in a different way. Uh, in watching a bunch of her movies, I've also noticed those like tiny humorous moments that like with uh, just lost in translation or like um the clips of Maria Antoinette I had seen before I hadn't really noticed that consistently there's this like realistic little senses of humor while people are saying such absurd lines that you can't help but be like oh my god the (laughs) the subtext here is crazy yeah (laughs) we we found ourselves giggling a lot in The Beguiled and I I feel like I was doing that definitely with even even in a movie that's sad like Virgin Suicides there are moments where you sort of giggle because you feel Mm -hmm. that connection to what the material there are moments where you just feel like it's like, it's really happening around you, and, like, you can see the humor in it, for sure. It did remind me a lot of Virgin Suicides, because it's a group of women, like, very isolated in a certain situation, and then you throw something into the mix that makes it, like, creates a whole new dynamic and uh, causes them to act differently towards each other and also with other people and... uh, and also the social pressures, like in this movie, mm-hmm. in this movie, they face the pressure of like being a good Christian, being a good student, being ladylike and how their life is sort of run by people that aren't like they don't have control over their lives, even though they're independent people, you know, like even though they're strong women with capable like that are capable of um, sort of taking control of their lives, they're still sort of dic- like their life is dictated by the war that's going on, the men that have left them to go to war and waiting for the world to restore itself when the men come back. Mm-hmm. Apparently, um, for uh, um, 
Sofia Coppola gave Nicole Kidman for her character like a vintage manners book from that time period. Like basically, like they would give these books to women at, in that time, basically like a giant like instructory book. This is how you be a woman, and this is how you get respect, and that kind of stuff. And so she gave that to Nicole Kidman, and you can see she took that and ran with it. It's great. Mm-hmm. She does such a good job of really embodying that woman that maintains control of the household and is sort of intimidating to the men around her and a little bit frigid and icy and yet we can see the softness or the maternal um, qualities within her. Like I still see myself feeling safe in her house. You know what I mean? Like she still has those qualities that make you think, trust her in a way. I was surprised how um, dark it was, like not in terms of tone, but in terms of like lighting, Mm -hmm. because all of Sofia Coppola's films seem to be like fairly light and airy, but this Mm -hmm. one's so dark that sometimes you can barely see the faces, which is kind of interesting because then they're just these um, white like outfits with like a head silhouette. I think it's somewhat the quality of the movie we were watching too, Uh, but definitely, I, I thought there were elements of it that definitely looked like virgin suicides. It was very airy, very ethereal. The lighting was really sort of clouded and smoky and lots of really light-colored hues. Um, And then, like you say, there's some scenes, all the internal scenes are are quite dark, and I think it probably adds to the drama because everything's candlelit. But, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's also... um reminds you that that they're kind of all there is they have nothing Mm -hmm. really else to entertain themselves besides each other Mm -hmm. so that's why they're forced into these kind of not forced but like they want to um connect with the man more than they probably would otherwise yeah and you can feel their desperation and she does like and she creates intimacy so well with the light as well with the candlelight or the adding some smoke and, and sort of filtering the daylight it really makes you feel like this is it, there's a special quality to every scene or every interaction and uh, at the beginning when she sort of draws out the scene where Nicole Kidman is bathing this fallen soldier you can feel Nicole Kidman's reaction to his body and having a man in the house for the first time since she lost her partner to the war back when he left I'd be that. curious to watch the um, Clint Eastwood version to see what actual differences there are because I don't know what all she changed, but uh, it, it was very much from the woman's perspective. Like, at the end, personally, I didn't feel any sympathy for Colin Farrell's character at all. Mm-hmm. I was just like, that seems about right. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and yet you can, the, she maintains some level of humanity where you can understand how he's, you can look at him and feel his frantic panic you know you like can you empathize can, with them yeah yeah you can definitely see the panic and you don't just sort of turn him into a monster that i guess that's another thing that i was surprised by is i thought i was going to this movie where colin farrell's character was going to be this rapist who was a uh, like just a, a soldier coming in to take what he wanted and there was actually a lot of sort of there were a lot of redeeming qualities about him that made you mm-hmm. understand him even if you didn't agree with him it's not anti-man or anything it's mm-hmm. just like it's almost as if they can't exist together in that situation. Like, it was doomed to fail mm-hmm. um, unless... Uh, it's actually kind of interesting, like, the uh, like, abil- like power dynamic of just him. He's injured at first, and that's how they're able to co- coexist together. Like, he has that one line, if only I could stay weak forever, like, mm-hmm. mocking Nicole Kidman. Um, and really, that's, like, how they got along initially. But now that he has, he's at full health and he has the power it's her power is threatened and it, it just can't like happen without like them yielding and they're not going to yield because this is their house. And... Yeah. And 
it's you can really feel the the sort of there's almost a panicky air to him coming in and all of the women dying for his attention like all of them vying for his attention and dressing up and you know trying to create connections with him in the same room the way that it's shot you definitely feel it and in the subtlety of the lines and the way that they're delivered and the way the movie is so well acted you can definitely feel all of that all the scenes where they're getting ready really remind me of the virgin suicides like mm-hmm. when they finally get to go the dance and they have the i think they actually have ribbons in that one too and in the mm-hmm. beguile they have ribbons and they're doing each other's hair and mm-hmm. yeah it seems like there's a sentimentality to femininity for sofia coppola that mm-hmm. i really like um also okay so going into this episode i was having trouble i was reading her bio and i was looking into just sort of her story, how she got into movies and, and how she found success so really. And I was a bit, uh, I have to say it was a bit off-putting because most of the women that we read about have worked so hard to try and be noticed in any way, shape, or form. And Sofia Coppola is arguably the most privileged woman that we've considered for this series. Well, for sure she's the most privileged uh, and one of the most privileged women working in film because uh, of money and nepotism and uh, connections. <laughs> she being born to the father, like uh, with your father being Francis Ford Coppola and growing up on those movie sets and then um, having the means to be able to go in and just start doing it yourself, trying it on for you. And then she's also surrounded by movie talent. She's cousins with Jason Schwartzman and uh, Nicolas Cage. And then she was, and then she married into. Um, or she was uh, in relationships with very influential film people as well. So not to say that that had anything to do with her talent. I think she's very talented. Mm-hmm. And so revisiting her work has sort of given me that comfort. And then uh, Sarah found us a clip from behind the scenes. We could clip, we could link this below, but there's a behind the scenes video of uh, Lost in Translation where all of a sudden I was completely shifted out of thinking of her as spoiled because she's so gracious and so sensitive and so um, connected and really, really grateful. Like, there's a sense of when she was just kind of like, Bill's coming tomorrow. And, <laughs> you know, just like so excited for Bill Murray to show up and so grateful for the people that are helping her and so calm and collected and really like considerate of everything that was happening around her and seemed just so grateful, which I didn't expect from someone. Yeah, I find it interesting that she's so soft spoken, but she knows how to like get what she wants, like getting mm-hmm. Bill Murray for Lost in Translation apparently was a long process and she was picturing him the entire time when she was writing the script like then the behind the scenes thing she has it's like I was just kind of picturing me hanging out with Bill or something like that mm-hmm. um, and getting through his like agent and basically all the barriers that you have to go through to actually talk with Bill Murray and then she wouldn't finally like talk to him she had to actually convince him to do the movie that apparently was quite the adventure and but she got Bill Murray so mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's so I can't imagine anybody else filling that role exactly but- um, and I read uh, in one place that she said, I think it was Lost in Translation, uh, her dad showed up on set and he said, you should be saying action louder. And <laughs> she said that it was intimidating to have her dad there, but it was also sh- good for her to reestablish that she can do things her way and still accomplish something really great. Mm-hmm. There was another interview where she said, like, consistently uh, says the greatest thing her dad taught her was just to do things uh, like uh, she was talking about. Um, oh, we're waiting for it to get greenlit. And he was like, greenlit? In my day, you just started doing things. You didn't wait for things to get greenlit. And she yeah. was like, okay, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you can see that bravery. She really has just sort of taken on big projects and uh, gone with her gut. And she's been the writer, and she's been she's really put forward her creative talent uh, in a big way, and it's, it's paid off, mm-hmm. like everything that she's done. And so um, transitioning a little bit here... You just watched Virgin Suicides. Yeah, I'd never seen it before. Um, so 
The Virgin Suicides was made in 1999. It is Sofia Coppola's directorial debut. It's about a group of male friends or like little boys who become obsessed with these five sisters who live nearby. Their uh, lives under the strict religious parents that um, govern them and it's made in the 1970s in Detroit. And so we started to learn about their lives. Coming to hold collective memories of times we hadn't experienced, we felt the imprisonment of being a girl. The way it made your mind active and dreamy and how you ended up knowing what colors went together. We knew that the girls were really women in disguise, that they understood love and even death, and that our job was merely to create the noise that seemed to fascinate them. We knew that they knew everything about us and that we couldn't fathom them at all. Um, I think it was a bit hyped up for me. It's one of those scenarios where everyone tells you, like, it, it's amazing, and then you watch it, and you're like, this is good, but... like, so I have a few buts, but I also have a few this is amazings. Um, so it feels very much like a 90s movie, like it's made in 1999, mm-hmm. but it has those, like, slightly obnoxious fonts and the mm-hmm. slightly, like... I think the, like, sound was imbalanced in the version I was watching, but, like, the kind of super, like... Um, loud music where like they, that one dude trip is walking around the school with his hair and getting like his homework done by these girls and I think the music that plays during that is just so like oh my god <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it definitely sets the mood it's effective it's just kind of feels obnoxious sometimes um, and it's very John Hughesy but except without uh, it lacks like the dialogue of two people connecting like in John Hughes movies which I think is part of it and gets you feeling that like depression that the girls are feeling but it's kind of like you can't fully access it like I know that's part of it is that it's from like it's kind of weird because she's a female director but it's from the boys perspective really because you never get to an inside perspective of what causes their suicides like it kind of comes out of like not nowhere because you know it's gonna it's called the virgin suicides and you know it's gonna happen and you know that like they're in a bad home situation and yeah and the the boys have been uh talking with them kind of throughout as they're locked in their home and there's the whole um, smoke inhalation aspect that could influence it because she forces the girl to burn all her rock records and then it's just like sealing all the smoke in the house which is very dangerous Um, but (laughs) I never felt like I like in Lost in Translation I like feel these two characters a sense of like disconnection and like slight depression like I think Scarlett Johansson's character in Lost in Translation is kind of depressed but in Virgin Suicides it's not fully accessible like that I never get to see uh, or connect with the char- like the girl characters as much and that was kind of frustrating for me because it's like it is from the boys perspective and I want it to be more from the girls perspective like kind of like it almost is with the beguiled but it's um an interesting thing still nonetheless um and see for me I think that that was one of my favorite parts is the fact that we're put into a position we don't want to be in. And whenever I have, like, a really tangible reaction to a movie, I'm really captivated by that because it's like, oh, you made me feel something. Like, you did that to me. You manipulated me. And so for me, it was, like, the whole movie, I'm just struggling to understand these girls. And you never really get to. You never really get to understand um, what's going on with them. And I think that that's probably the position of the boys. It's like they idolize these girls. They put them on a pedestal. They see them uh, at a distance, and they decide things about them. But they never actually know them. They never actually understand the the, the confines of being a girl in this kind of depression and, and what leads them to sort of commit this, like, mass suicide. I find it frustrating, though, because 
it doesn't almost make me empathize with the boys because I feel like if I was reading Cecilia's diary, I could read the parts and like actually understand her versus the boys reading Cecilia's diary. Mm-hmm. There's like, why is she writing so much about dead trees? And they skip mm-hmm. to the part where she's talking about Lux because they love Lux. Mm-hmm. So it's just a different, it forces you to see the girls through the boys. And I'm like, mm-hmm. so frustrated, like not so, so frustrated, but it was, it was a bit frustrating, mm-hmm. um, but really effective. It definitely is effective. Yeah, it's it's interesting that Cecilia. She it's not really a spoiler because it happens at the beginning. She uh, Cecilia kills herself at the age thirteen, and that's like the first teen age. Like before that, it's twelve, and after when you're thirteen, you get to add teen to your name, and so she kills herself right around then. And uh, it was so painful it, the party where she's at, and she like the boy um, says hi to her, and it's just like that's all she wants is someone to actually connect with her and be friendly. And when it doesn't happen, and it's all this like kind of forced like sexual tension of you've reached that age and now you don't get to have like genuine conversation with boys you only get to have this awkward tension um then that's kind of what I felt like she was feeling yeah and social expectation all of a sudden uh what people think of you and expect of you is different you like no longer are you valued for sort of childlike wonder and and all the things that you want to do uh, that like in terms of ideas and play and all that stuff. Now you're now you're being sexualized, and now we have mm-hmm. ideas about you, good and bad, and and otherwise. And it's interesting having a woman direct it because they are very sexualized, but it's from the boys' perspective. And then there's also that layer of like, you see who they are behind the sexualization, though they're like not just like the outfits they put on and the way that they pose on the lawn when they're sunbathing and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. I'm grateful for movies like Lost in Translation because I think if I'd only seen, say, like the like Bling Ring and The Beguiled and Lost in Translation, I'd be f- or um and um, Virgin Suicides, I'd be frustrated by continuously putting out that character that's like seeking validation that way. You know, that's sort of like um, Christ- Kristen Dunst in Virgin Suicides and um, um, Elle Fanning in The Beguiled because. Those char- like those characters, those women that are seeking that so badly, it's it's hard to watch. It's it's hard to it's it's hard not to be frustrated by them being reduced to that. But it's not that it never happens. Like that happens all the time. And so it's important to like see that juxtaposition, see that like those those characters. But I think I'm grateful to also sort of swing the other direction and watch a movie like Lost in Translation, where it's about sort of a more platonic intimacy and conversation. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a nice. Um balance like if you're having a meal that would be the thing that would balance it out (laughs) (laughs) and um uh she was saying like Sofia Coppola was saying in one interview that she thinks her movies are all sort of a reaction to one another and so when she made something that was uh really sort of slow moving and 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 still like or I, maybe it was Marie Antoinette. I can't remember if it was maybe it was Marie Antoinette where she made this sort of period piece, this, like going back in time uh, that far in history. She then wanted to make something like the Bling Ring because it was sort of so modern and so now. I can definitely and then, see that. Yeah, and um, so that's kind of an interesting thing to consider. And then also like after making Bling Ring, then swinging back and going to the Beguiles. But mm-hmm. and after Virgin Suicides felt like it had a lot of external things into it like it has the book influence and that's another thing i've listened to a podcast where um uh they discuss books and so they discuss version suicides and apparently the book is actually much darker like really when those suicides happen they only show like their feet but in the book it fully describes it and also the 
the boys are like they're still a bit creepy in the movie but uh they're much creepier in the book Mm -hmm. in the sense that like um when they have the interview with trip like after describing how he left lex on the field after they have sex apparently in the book he says like I felt disgusted with her after that and just couldn't handle it and left. Mm-hmm. Like, he was pretty upfront about it. I don't know how why he'd be that honest. It makes more sense in the movie that he's just kind of evasive. Yeah. But in the book, he's fully honest. Is like, after I, like, took her virginity, she was no longer innocent, so I was disgusted with her and had to leave. And that's, like, so, like, oh, my God, that's yeah. that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and you do, like, I don't know, you... I, I felt like that... I loved that, too, about the movie, though, is this... Um, the way that it's just so obvious that these girls are being used, like they're beautiful and so that's what they're reduced to. And so the little boys, even though they idolize the girls, they really reduce them to their looks and the fact that they're idolizing them because they're beautiful and untouchable. And they don't actually consider, these are my friends, they're cool, they do this and that and whatever, yeah. and let's just consider them for in a in a way that's human and, and sort of um, like as my peer. And then for, um, what is her name? Kirsten Dunst's character? Uh, Lex. Lex. How she just she just sort of continues in a downward spiral of this is all I'm worth to people and so this is all I'm going to this is how I'm going to feel good about myself is to continue to get that kind of validation because no one's willing to see me as this you know he he wasn't willing to see me as a person he wasn't willing to see me as just a as like something more mm-hmm. and so like I'm just going to continue to go back to that because I know that I can feel good this way mm-hmm. and also like hoping that your charms keep because she's so like excited when her charm first like works for her and he's telling her you're like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen or something along those lines and she gets to be the cool girl that's like fat chance and stuff like that mm-hmm. and then when it's gone it's like you just want it back so badly because it made you feel so good mm-hmm. um and none of the boys on the roof really stay they all kind of leave afterwards and it's so sad and I do feel like Lex is a really believable character. You really, you do definitely understand her emotions, like the sort of swing of emotions back and forth, trying to maintain power, trying to maintain um, a sense of self and dignity, but also like needing that validation and needing that, um, yeah, just consideration from men. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. A few things that were visually super cool was the time lapse of the house. Mm-hmm. Like it was uh, not just even a time lapse; it was also like the leaves kind of come in a unnatural fashion where they're like layered down like this, but it looks super cool. So I just like it, and um, the contrast between the girls' blue room inside the house and the like outside in the, the suburban neighborhood is always very orange and nice that way. But inside, it's just blue and depressing, and you can see how they get depressed i love um, and at the, at the end the party is all green mm-hmm. oh my god that party was so creepy mm-hmm. and uh, i also loved the dance with like the the lights and the streamers and all that stuff when they go to the school dance and the but the color palette in this movie is what i love so much the the pinks and the yellows and the blues i whenever i see uh anything nowadays i feel like that's really sort of come back into style and so you see things like uh if you've ever seen petra collins photography or anything like that where there's all these color filters and like um she just shot selena gomez's last video and just all the pinks and the greens and the yellows and i just always think the virgin suicides virgin suicides (laughs) sophia coppola did it first you know um yeah it was i really really love all of the lighting and the way that this is sort of a dream sequence Mm -hmm. Mm um and the only other thing I uh, that I, I made notes. So the only other thing in my notes is um, after Lex loses her virginity to Trip, there's a definite like 
uh, tone change, and I really like that that's in there. Like, it just kind of seems to shift instantly, and then the music, once it happens, I really like that um, music that's playing, and it's not like the other music where it's kind of obnoxious. It's just more, like, um, monotone and perfectly, like, is the soundtrack for their downward, like, trend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do feel like there's a numbness to the second half that mm-hmm. wasn't there before. It was The first half is a lot more vibrant. And then, yeah, and um, then we go forward to something like the bling ring, where everything is loud and, like, slightly tacky <laughs> and <laughs> overwhelming. So the bling ring was made in 2013, and it's inspired by actual events of these, like, Hollywood Hills burglaries about a bunch of uh, fame-obsessed teenagers who use the internet to track down celebrities' whereabouts in order to rob their homes. That's amazing. Oh, oh, my God! <laughs> oh. oh, my God! <laughs> Jesus. Oh. I like the feel of this. So oh my god, this is Balma. So cute. Oh. Wait. It's so cute. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> Check it. And we were discussing earlier, I think, it, like, I felt exactly the way you did, where you said that it was hard for you to connect with the characters. For me, there was just no there wasn't enough development of each character for me to understand them or relate to them. And I don't know if that was done on purpose or not, but I definitely didn't really believe them. I didn't, I didn't believe Emma Watson as this character. I didn't really, I couldn't, I liked the idea. I liked the premise. And in the end interviews, I could see where it was going. And I think that if I'd read those quotes on paper, I would have laughed about them or if it had been played differently, I would have really enjoyed it as like a sort of a a little caricature of that point in time of like the glorification of Paris Hilton like the early 2000s where it was just like everything is bling and everything is glitzy and we have two cell phones and <laughs> we have dogs bling. in all our purses and yeah and all that matters is being famous and taking selfies and and you know going to clubs and wearing lots of stuff and um I think that that was a great concept but I definitely didn't really love the delivery of it it's hard to do those um ones where all the person wants is fame because a lot of the time it ends up being empty. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a a motivation for why people want, like, to be famous and it's not just because it's cool. It comes from a more emotional place, I -hmm. I feel like, of y'all finally get this validation and not that they're actually going to get that and I think that's an important thing to explore but they think if they are famous they'll have this and this and this that they're absent from their current lives. Mm -hmm. So I feel... I, I, I think it didn't explore enough how that's absent from each individual character's lives. It was just, this looks so attractive and cool, so we're going to go towards that. Yeah. And if they were if they were going to focus just on the madness of it and how quickly it escalated, yeah, I, just, I think I needed something more. There's so much subtlety in all of her other movies that make me feel connected to the characters, and these ones I just felt... I, maybe it was un- intentional that they were superficial to me, but they were a little too superficial for my liking. Yeah, and it didn't really commit to being full-on satire. Like, I think yeah. you can have a character that's totally absurd and you don't relate to them at all and still enjoy the movie yeah. or have a, like, really realistic character that you connect with. Like, um, with uh, I Shot Andy Warhol, I feel like she's a really realistic character that you end up connecting with despite, yeah. like... Well, she's also kind of, cra- like, crazy, but you connect with her anyway. It's that kind of, they're crazy, but you connect with them versus full-on satire, like... I'm trying to think of one where you just don't connect with them, but you love it anyway. Um, Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, <laughs> that like, is a good one. You know, like, yeah, these satirical characters where you they are obviously not real, but you still, you you believe them in their role. And for me, yeah. this was too in the middle. It was too gray. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, it's visually so fun. Though. Like, there's a reason that I watched it, and it's because the trailer is so fun, and just the concept and the fact that this actually happened is so fun, mm-hmm. but it didn't, like, connect with me. But to be honest, if Sofia Coppola hadn't been listed as the director, and if Emma Watson <laughs> hadn't been cast in the movie, I would have completely overlooked it. I would have thought, this is a this is a bad movie about to come out. <laughs> you know, this is, this is a really bad movie about to play in the theater. Sort of like, I would have looked at it sort of like that Spring Break movie with Selena Gomez. Oh my god, I actually watched Spring Breakers because my, Spring um, Breakers, right. my friend had a cousin in town who, like, she she was Christian. Her parents wouldn't let her see it, so she was like, "I have to see the I have to see the movie that my parents won't let me see," and that was Spring Breakers at the time. Of course, <laughs> I I think I never saw the movie, but I assumed that the entire movie was just James Franco being like Spring Break. You know what it kind of was? <laughs> like there was a there was a bit of layers to it, but you yeah. know, yeah. It, it was interesting. Um, yeah. uh, and so then. Lost in Translation. We just watched the behind the scenes. Um, that was so cool. Clip. Sarah I love found, that yeah. so much. Well, definitely link it below because it was a really sweet find from Sarah in the archives, uh, in the YouTube archives. In the YouTube archives. Um, but, uh, so Lost in Translation was made in 2013, and it's about a middle-aged movie star and a neglected young woman who form an unlikely bond crossing paths in Tokyo. Does it get easier? No. Yes. It gets easier. No, oh, yeah. Look at you. Thanks. <laughs> the more you know who you are and what you want, the less you let things upset you. It- I don't know. Lost in Translation for me is a movie that I just love so much. I think mm-hmm. it shines all of... Uh, like a shines light on all of Sofia Coppola's best characteristics, the subtlety, the quirkiness, the humor, the lighting, everything is, and it's so well acted. Like you just, uh, Scarlett Johansson does such a good job of being this believable woman with, you understand her conflicts right away, you understand her desires right away, and it's all so subtle. And yeah, she's just like looking out a window and you're like, I get that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's looking at a window. She looks back at the guy that's snoring. She, you know, she moves through a space. She approaches someone else. The softness in her voice, the smirk on her uh, mouth. Like we just, I just really, really love both the characters and the setting. And putting these two people in this setting that's really intimate, um, but also within a city that's so sort of not hollow, but sort of hollow because it's all these buildings and lights and noise and chaos and then there's and these people like culturally a culture that's sort of prone to disconnect and and prone to sort of solitude and then these two people that find each other and make a connection it's just a really really wonderful movie and I think it feels the best out of all of Sofia Coppola's films because she wrote it originally like if you look at Bling Rings based on events Marie Antoinette's based on events and a revisionist history um uh, Virgin Suicide's based on a book Beguiled's based off a book slash movie and then Mm -hmm. Lost in Translation stands alone as like this is her Mm -hmm. this is like based on her experiences being in Tokyo and connecting like her like dreams slash what like experiences and neither of us have seen somewhere by the way <laughs> oh yeah that's the reason we're not discussing yeah that's the reason somewhere. we're not we talking haven't about it seen it but i think we did pretty good we yeah. watched god knows like yeah, four we movies wa- we watched a few five movies uh we still have to watch that one apparently it won i can't remember which european film festival it might have been berlin it won one like it won the festival <laughs> like the ultimate prize but i can't remember uh yeah, which one, and I think it's probably worthwhile, but we just didn't make time for it. That will be an interesting one to watch, though, because it, 
with her dad. It has a whole dad-daughter dynamic, so I'm really interested mm-hmm. to see how that one plays out, mm-hmm. in, in, considering she wrote it. Yeah, and I think it's really cool to see the ways that their work is rem- reminiscent of each other. Maybe not so much Nicolas Cage, but Francis Ford Coppola, Jason Schwartzman, Spike Jones. We were just talking about her versus... Uh, Lost in Translation. Oh, there's this incredible video essay. We will also link that because I love it. It contrasts her and Lost in Translation because they both take place in Tokyo. And Spike Jones, the director director of La- uh, her, and Sofia Coppola, the director of Lost in Translation, were once married. And they both have Scarlett Johansson in her. Scarlett Johansson is just a voice, but her voice is so distinctive. And so they go together so well. Yeah, and just, I think, it's really, it's really cool to think of them as a couple. And even though I don't want to distract from the focus of Sofia Coppola as an artist it's just really interesting to think of them as a couple because both of them have such an intimacy and like sentimentality to their work their movies are so um they're so emotionally charged in a really withdrawn way that uh I think it's just like oh I'm charmed by it immediately even Mm -hmm. though they're not married anymore and even though it only lasted a few years I just I'm still charmed by the thought of those two ever being connected because uh their work is so uh, close to the heart kind of it sounds mm-hmm. so cheesy but <laughs> it's very personal it has a lot yeah, of people personal. seeking out connections mm-hmm. and like being just lonely and yeah yeah and trying to yeah trying to give love and feel love and yeah those things I mean yeah I'm, I feel like I'm starting to like push over into Spike Jones's work and and just pull okay, myself we'll, away we'll but take it back yeah <laughs> um, so one of the things I love about Lost in Translation is its location I feel like each, each one of her films really embraces its location because like the Beguiled is that, like, Southern Civil War setting, Marie Antoinette's, like, the French the Revolution setting, and Virgin Suicides is that suburbia. Well, in the French Revolution, in the wealthiest spot. Yeah, in <laughs> yeah. Versailles. Yeah, so if we went beyond the gates, it would be a much different setting. <laughs> this, this is true. It, in, yeah, at Versailles. It, it embraces Versailles. Yeah. Marie Antoinette was made in 2006, and it's a retelling of uh, the story of Marie Antoinette coming to France, uh, marrying the eventual king, and the pressures on her as a queen, and uh, eventually the fall of Versailles. You're winning, I hope. Dom, it's quite late. I think it's time for the dealers to return to Paris. You said we could play, but you never specified the home. I'd rather get see much sleep. Have you ever watched the sunrise? No, no, it's over for the boat, my dear. Oh, that doesn't count. Is your turn, Try not to lose our fortune. Even for the French who support movies fully, to allow the production of a Sofia Coppola movie, which is like, I say Sofia Coppola because it's a large production, um, and to allow that to go on in Versailles is just bizarre. Like, I don't know what the budget was, I don't know what they had to pay for, I don't know when they shot it, but to be able to shoot there is amazing. I was trying to Google if, like, any other films had been allowed to shoot there, and I couldn't figure it out, but just based on, like, the Wikipedia page, it was saying that hers is, like, uh, it was unprecedented. I don't Mm -hmm. know if that means it was the first, but... I know that there's been documentaries shot there before, but I don't know about any sort of, um, like, dramas. Yeah, like letting an American shoot a, <laughs> yeah. like, English-voiced film in Versailles. Like. Mm-hmm. And so apparently it was booed at Cannes Film Festival. I think that it sounded like the 
the response was polarized because some people really loved it. Obviously, it got a lot of critical acclaim, and then some people really couldn't stand it. And I imagine those were sort of more the traditionalist people at Cannes mm. uh, that really didn't like it because it is a diversion from their history. It's American. Uh, it's an American-made film. It is spoken in English the entire time. It is about. Uh, it is almost empathizing. Would you say it empathizes with Marie Antoinette's oh, character? Yeah, like completely. I would say that it's... Uh, and for a lot of people, Marie Antoinette was kind of this indulgent, problematic character in France uh, who ignored a lot of the poor people and who spent a lot of money that wasn't hers and who distracted from her role, quote, um, as a, as the wife. Well, in the, I don't actually know the historical accuracy, but the um, in the film, Jason Schwartzman playing the king, he's basically just like too nervous to do it with her which makes sense considering they're like 14 or 15 when they get married that they'd like take a while and Mm -hmm. get to know each other beforehand but she feels so much pressure from her mom and pretty much everybody to be like make an heir because this king could die at any point and then we'd be left without a next monarch yeah i don't actually know i'm just looking up the history the actual facts because um i was under the impression that marine twin was like 13 or 14 when she came over from austria and her husband was quite a bit older and that he was sort of indifferent to her and didn't really care about her and she, all she wanted was to be alone and to be away from him and that's why she lived in a separate house and that's why she had threw all these parties and had all these friends and was sort of indulgent and, and acting like a teenager instead of like a monarch because she was totally uninterested in France and it's like and the monarchy and, and trying to be a part of that world and trying to be a, a wife to this man that was older and stingy and boring and <laughs> whatever. Um, I love that she was just a regular teenager. Like, that's basically, like, the whole point of the film is that she is, like, 14 or 15 when she's coming to this incredibly indulgent place and everyone's telling her, you just need to make a baby and you'll be good and you need to talk to the right people when we tell you to talk to the right people and all these boring things and so that's how she takes her power back kind of in the movie is just doing her own hair and her own makeup and partying and doing what she wants to do basically yeah and it is an interesting discussion to consider the other side because when i was learning about um, a bit of french history it definitely sounded biased to the fact that like marie antoinette was this sort of stain on the mm-hmm. <laughs> she was this this person that didn't abide by any of the things or she didn't uphold herself in a way that she should have and then if you consider the fact that she was a kid and like imagine being put in this situation where you're shipped off to another country married off by your family and you are given all this responsibility that you want nothing to do with and you're in a country that's suffering and the people are unhappy and perishing uh, in poverty and then you're given all the luxuries and if you ask for it you can get it and so why not distract yourself from real life and real responsibilities and just forget everything that you're supposed to be doing and try and indulge in all the things that you shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. I also love that it's a basically a revisionist history. Like I have a, a friend who is doing her history master's and she's fascinated with all this kind of like the history of history. So there's like political history where it gives so much agency to these um, political figures. Like some people would say like Marie Antoinette caused the revolution by doing X, but in like social history, you would say it more evolves like, by groups and consensus and is less the result of one person because she's just one person who was being told you have to f- you have to get your husband to have sex with you so you can have a baby and you need to read all these briefs about these things that like don't relate to you at all because you live in a palace and <laughs> your mom is disappointed in you because you haven't had a baby yet but your brother and sister have yeah i think that actually that's a really interesting topic the mother-daughter relationships throughout history because if you consider the way that 
like yeah we can talk about society but i actually think it's really interesting that that scene where uh the mother's it's the mother's letter that's being read out Mm -hmm. um i think that that's really fascinating because i know that for me too my mom's perspective is the most influential my like anybody else around me could say something disapproving and I would probably laugh it off and my mom could say the same thing and I would be shattered that's and so, so true and so it's interesting and for these women they grew up in a different generation and so they're sort of sort of like we saw in Fences where the father character is sort of pushing his his understanding of the world on his son who has different opportunities that he doesn't understand uh and he's pushing on his beliefs out of fear this i feel the same way about marie antoinette and you know our or any sort of point in history our mothers grew up in a, t- a different time with different limitations and so how it must be too it must be really hard for them to imagine a different life for their daughters it's sort of like well no this is the world and i don't want i want you to be protected so you should be following this guideline you should be having children you should be being a good wife you should be you know doing these things so that you protect yourself and our resources and and all this stuff you know i also think you only have a certain amount of power like you could put all this weight on her but really she like eventually did what she was told was her job she had a kid and stood by her husband like um around the end um she's uh she has her own individual home but she's kind of moving back as people are starting to riot and uh storm versailles and she's like saying i won't leave unless my husband leaves like she's trying to be a good wife and stick by her husband's decisions meanwhile they they also show the like pressures on the husband uh, jason schwartzman's character the king Mm -hmm. and how he's thrown into he was like an unusually young king i don't know how like young he actually was i can't remember but it was clear that he was unusually young because his father died early and he's thrown into this. He has all these advisors telling him, I think we should send troops to America. And he's like, OK, we shall send troops to America. And then you have all these people who are like, why are our taxes higher? And he's like, ah, <laughs> it's just incredibly regular. <laughs> like that's, that's, That is a realistic reaction, just doing what your advisors tell you to do because you think that's best. And then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, we kind of jumped from Lost in Translation to Marie Antoinette, but I was saying that I really liked the um, location of Lost in Translation because I actually did an exchange to Japan about two years ago when I was in university. And so the first time I watched Lost in Translation, I had never been there, and it was all just kind of like abstractly cool, but now I can watch it and be like, that's Shibuya Crossing, <laughs> she's going to Kyoto to see the awesome temple, stuff like <laughs> that. And it's all familiar, and, and um, in the behind the scenes, it was particularly... Uh, interesting because they kind of run and gunned it like um it's really hard probably to organize certain like things in public places in japan because they have a law about um not taking photos or video of anyone without their permission like it's not as if someone's going to see you doing it in the street and crack down on you but if you have a photo of someone and you post it online they can take legal action against you being like you photographed me without my permission like it's very different than in uh, north america so to run and gun it in Shibuya Crossing, like the most famous crossing in Tokyo, is hilarious and amazing. I loved that <laughs> they did that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, talk about how awesome Bill Murray is. And the behind the scenes, it shows more of Bill Murray and just his incredible sense of humor. He has this, like, Japanese phrase book, but it's just about, like, 
hitting on people, but then there's one that's like, um, what did you just say to me? He learns how to say, what did you just say to me in Jap- Japanese? And then he just starts telling that to people, like, what did you just say to me? <laughs> like, in the ran- randomly in the hotel, and he's, like, bragging about it. He's kind of a character. Uh, yeah, I've actually, it was interesting to watch that because I watched an interview with Wes Anderson talking about Bill Murray, and because he's been in so many Wes Anderson movies, arguably every single one. Mm. Um, I don't know. <laughs> he's in Rushmore, he's in Royal Tenenbaums, he's pr- probably every single one. If he's shit. in Bottle Rocket too, I think he's been in every one. Huh. Um, anyway, uh, the point is, is Wes Anderson was talking about Bill Murray and just the sort of grounding f- uh, quality that Bill Murray has. He just comes on set, he he speaks to all the people, everyone listens to him, he has this captivating, calming sense about him that just sort of maintains control of the production and that everybody just sort of gravitates towards him as like this sort of father figure that that makes everything happen and makes everything stay on track and makes everybody feel comfortable. And it seemed that way too in the behind, behind the scenes thing with Sofia Coppola. It was just kind of like, Bill's coming. I'm, look, I'm so excited. <laughs> and then just like him being there, he was this central character. It was obvious that everybody was just sort of totally captivated by him. I feel like his character in that movie is a lot like, or in the behind the scenes, it kind of just seemed like him, mm-hmm. especially the sense of humor of like reacting to these absurd things. Like, him interacting with some of the kids on set when they were at, like, an airport or uh, a subway or something. He's just, like, joking with the kid, being like, oh, you're this, aren't you, and stuff like that. It yeah. seems like how the character would actually act. Yeah, he seems, it seems pretty true to himself, a lot of the characters that he plays. And apparently, Sofia Coppola was a producer on A Very Murray Christmas. <laughs> she, yeah, she was, like, the, more, more, she was actually the director. Oh, okay, so, yeah. I yeah. haven't seen that, because it seemed kind of... I watched weird. it. Was it, <laughs> it was weird. I mean, I think that I'd probably have to go back and rewatch it with the understanding that I was watching something by Sofia Coppola and like whatever. <laughs> but I, I, at the time, I watched it and was just kind of unprepared. It was on TV at Christmas time, and I was like, <laughs> "This is bizarre." <laughs> Apparently, it was originally supposed to be a Valentine's Day special with Bill Murray <laughs> singing love songs. Oh my That's gosh! Great. That is great. Okay, so. There's so much more to talk about with Sofia Coppola, but I think we've discussed a fair number of her films, and we need to move on to these interview clips that we've gotten from the Women's Network, a uh, Women's Film and TV Network in Winnipeg. It happened last week at the Winnipeg Film Group, and we talked to Lasha Mochin, a local filmmaker who does this program called Artists in the Classroom, teaching animation to kids. She's done a number of short films and kind of has this... um. Um, I'm terrible at describing these words. I tend to use the word avant-garde or a lot, but I guess like pop art kind of style sometimes. And she's also done a short documentary on climate change. We also talked to uh, Cleo... Curtis. Cleo Curtis, <laughs> who uh, has also made a number of short films. She works at the U of W doing... Um, uh, she's the communications person at the U of W. You should, you should do the Cleo. Uh, <laughs> she is the communications person at the UWSA, and she and her uh, partner Scott and friend Trevor uh, sort of run their own private production company where they do corporate video and weddings and etc. And then uh, she also has made a documentary about divorce. She did a short film called Rinse that did the circuit uh, a few years back and did quite well. And um, yeah. And Cleo was actually hosting this uh, meeting of the Women's Film and TV Network, which was awesome because I think we actually made some like progress in planning like a c- group project, kind of. It's exciting. Anyway, here's the clips. My name's Lasha Mouchin, and I think it makes a lot of sense that you're interviewing me right now. You can hear the din of the Women's Film Network in the background. We just cut out for a second um, to do this interview, and... Um, 
project that I will be working on soon is called The Hand Model. It's about a hand model. Never would have guessed it. <laughs> so something that we discovered recently uh, is that no woman has ever been nominated for cinematography at the Oscars, and only one woman's won Best Directing, and only four women have been nominated for Best Directing. How does that make you feel as a woman in film? It makes me feel very concerned and angry, I think, because it makes me think about this cinematography class that I took this one time where this guy talked about, the teacher of the class, talked about the problem of lighting older women so that they didn't look like they had too many shadows, you know? And whenever he referred to the crew, he would always use male gendered terms. And whenever he referred to who is in front of the lens, he would use female gendered terms. So I think that's messed up that so few women have been nominated for cinematography, um, like zero, and um, only one has ever won for directing, considering when you think about who's on the other side of that lens, too, it's women. like And women in Hollywood needing to sort of appease this like male gaze that is being like, or this projection of like what, you know, the, a male film industry would want or a male audience would want. And I think that's really sad. And I think, I really hope that we can change that or just start to think that maybe those awards don't matter because they don't matter to me if that's their value system. Mm -hmm. um, so what is like a movie you've seen recently or one of your favorite movies that uh, uh, has a woman's director, cinematographer, writer, anything really? I mean, I'm thinking about like Agnes Varda or this other group that is ha like Duke and Battersby, which... Um, Emily Battersby is one of the main producers, and they make really weird, like, experimental kind of work. Someone who's really influenced me is Maya Darren. Um, her 15-minute short, um, Atland, she was really amazing. Um, it was shot, like, in the World War II era, and I don't think there were a lot of women behind the camera at that point in time. And it's really interesting because she takes this completely unique approach to filmmaking. Like, she plays with continuity. So, um, in her famous short, Atland, a woman is crawling up the, like, this fallen over tree. And she's, like, trying to hoist herself up. And then when she finally comes to turn around the corner and ho hoist her body on, on top onto the flat surface, she is on top of a dining table with, like, you know, aristocrats smoking cigars. And um, it's just a very interesting play with the medium. Like, and, and then she'll cut back and you, you see her feet and they're still in in the tree roots and while the top half of her body is in a completely different environment mm -hmm. and I mean I saw that short for the first time years ago and it definitely influenced me last question um if you could give a piece of advice to you like 
a decade ago or five years ago around the time you were like first getting interested in film, what would it be? Um, don't put up with any bullshit. <laughs> I've been like, I mean, approached for like weird fucking reasons by like men in positions of power. So nothing bad ever happened, but but like I would just say just don't tolerate it or don't feel like you have to. And I would say like just don't get discouraged so easily like I felt like there was a point where I wanted to give up on filmmaking because I just felt like I wasn't ever going to get anywhere and I I, I feel like I'm sure that point could even happen again one of these days because it's hard it's very hard um but I think it's just important to I guess treat yourself well and try and Keep your head in the game. <laughs> Keep your nose down. You know, like, I'm pretending I'm a Jets player right now. <laughs> you just got to give it 110%. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, just try it. Go out there and try your best. <laughs> okay, thanks for the interview. Let's go back to the Women's Network. Uh, my name is Cleo. Uh, and the project that I'm working on is a project that I'm working on with Alex Atia, and it's called Heal. And we pitched it at the RBC pitch competition at the Gimli Film Festival in 2017 and lost. But we're still going to try and make it happen. So we've applied for a few grants and just waiting to hear back from them. That's awesome. Um, so something we discussed in the podcast recently that we were like shocked by was that no woman has ever been nominated for cinematography at the Oscars and only one woman's won directing and only four women in total have been nominated. So how does that make you feel as a woman in the film industry? Uh, I think, I think it's extremely frustrating because I think, um, I think when you don't see yourself represented in an area that you want to be in, it's really hard to imagine you being successful because it feels like you're very much starting from ground zero um but you also kind of just have to appreciate that the people get to a place of success by trial and error so you just have to kind of put yourself out there and make stuff I think there's such a such a void of women in technical roles it's been so male dominated for so long and I think it's just so highly associated with men's talents that they're more technical than women which I think is just completely untrue um but to expect that you're going to pick up a camera and it's going to look beautiful it's just like an unreal expectation but for some reason when women pick up a camera to make a film the expectation for it to be amazing and represent all women mm -hmm. and be so much better is like it's expected to be that way so it can be really frustrating but I think for me I you know and especially making films in Winnipeg I think you think like, well, where are my films going to go? But I think something that really stuck with me is, you know, you have Ian Marcus, Fabian, and Milo. She made a film that played at TIFF. And it's a narrative film. And I remember people telling me, you know, don't make narrative films. They're never going to make it anywhere. And then they made a film and it made it into TIFF. And I was kind of like, I know them. I can make a film. Maybe it can make it into TIFF. Like, why don't I just try? And I think if there were more women doing, I think we just need more women making films. And then we'll be able to point to people instead of being like, just pointing to that one woman being like, oh, I'll make films because that one woman made films. It's like, <laughs> why don't we just have 40 women making films and then we can be like, 
these, all these women are successful in their own ways, I can be successful in my own way. Mm -hmm. Speaking of pointing at women, um, what are a couple of your fa favorite female directors, cinematographers, or like movies that women have worked on? Um, and it can be like just one you recently discovered that you just oh, like thought was okay. Like it can be anything. Yeah, um, I just saw certain women. Um, I'm drawing a blank on the filmmaker's name. We can Google it later. <laughs> it's okay. Certain women, they played at Cinematheque, um, and she actually, I think, shot the film, and it was just beautiful, and it was about four women, which is really great in telling their stories. Um, I think there's a lot of really great experimental filmmakers in the city that are making really interesting stuff um, that's very thought-provoking. Uh, Rain Vermette would be one. Uh, Alex Atia always like her stuff she just gets it done and it's really interesting and funny and smart um, I really like Sofia Coppola films just because they're very interesting Greta Gerwig I really want to see her new film uh, who else it's hard because there's not like that many to point to which kind of sucks like Nora Ephron writes really amazing films I think she established like the modern romantic comedy mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's, like, hard to think about it on the spot because, like, all the classics that are, like, drilled in your head. Like, I went to film school, and all the classics that were drilled into my head were men. <laughs> so it's hard to be, like, in that film. But, yeah, I think it's just, like, really sad that there's been no females or women cinematographers nominated for an Oscar because, like, they do exist. It's very slim, but they do exist. There's one that I follow on Instagram, Kate Rizmendi. And she posts some really great stuff, and she's done some like, cool commercials, and I think she's inspiring. Cool. Um, what is a piece of advice you would tell to yourself, like, a decade ago or five years ago, or when you were just, like, starting to have an interest in film? Just make as much stuff as possible. Like, make any idea that you want to make, and just, like, get it done, because the more you make stuff, the better you'll be at making things. Um, and then people who are making stuff like really don't care if you like it or not. Like it's not about making stuff for other people and it's just about like making stuff, getting it out and getting it done and showing it to a bunch of people. And I think I would just do everything, everything that I thought I couldn't do, I should just try and do anyways because failure is just going to be part of it. And like trying to avoid failure is just going to be like this formula for you not making anything. Cool. Thanks for talking to us. <laughs> Thanks. Well, that was already so <laughs> yeah, so I think that um, Cleo's answer really sums up the way that I, I feel and I think a lot of other women in film feel where especially that part about how women like it's almost like you're expected to pick up a camera and everything has to look beautiful and everything has to be perfect because if it isn't then you're forgotten and if it isn't then you failed and if it isn't you'll never get a job again and you have to be better than everybody else in order to make progress at all mm -hmm. and so and like she said, that's a totally unrealistic expectation. And even guys who are good at their job definitely have shots that they get rid of. I think for me, it was really important to go out shooting, like even just photography with um, other guys that I admire as photographers and see how they'd like pull their camera down and laugh and be like, whoa, I was shooting at 6200 ISO. And it's like, <laughs> oh, like you do that too sometimes? Like you make mistakes too, you know? And even just for the like flipping through and being like, oh, a bunch of like out of focus shots or oh, a bunch of like crappy throwaways. And it's like, it was really important for me to see that guys can mess up and that it wasn't just people who are successful are not successful because they're perfect all the time. They just do a lot and they do 
some of it really really well and so just trying to like I think what Cleo said about just continuing to work continuing to make stuff and continuing to drive yourself to like make more material is the only way that you'll look back and think hey these are the highlight reel items and this is stuff I'm really proud of Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of what Ellen Carras was saying, where don't be afraid to ask questions, because I'm afraid to ask questions mm-hmm. all the time, because mm-hmm. I fear that, like, oh, no, they'll know that I don't know it, yeah. basically. And I feel the pressure to be extremely talented, to be one of those women who were one of the few women kind of thing. Um, but like even amongst our class, we're four out of 12 women um, in media production you, major. You mean four women out of 12 Students. Yes, <laughs> yeah. we, we are four women out of twelve students in media production major, so that's like not as slim as the actual film industry, but still like less than half. For sure, and I definitely see uh, a challenge in like even in our class, us feeling confident enough to sort of dominate, like not dominate, but definitely participate at the forefront of conversation, or even. I don't necessarily look to our teachers as people who would look to us and be like, they should have the camera, or like here, you shoot this. I think that it's it's there, this this sort of inclination that we just innately have because we've grown up in a sexist world to look at a guy and be like hey you grab the gear you do this because you're probably capable of it as in even though that's totally untrue and the women in our class are totally talented and technical uh it's just that you don't there's that subtle sexism there that's hard to let go of that i think for a lot of but i mean maybe and i think maybe also that sort of is enhanced by our self-doubt yeah, a lot of it is sometimes just, like, sometimes I can't even tell if it's my brain or mm-hmm. if it's what's actually happening, which is yeah. why it's good to have these kind of conversations with other female film industry people to see, like, I'm not crazy. Is this a thing? Is this what happens? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you feel this, too? Yeah. And then Lash's response was so funny. I love Lash. Uh, she's hilarious. Yeah, th- and I think that the, that everybody has that... Sorry, excuse the language. Like everybody has that fucking cinematography class. Everybody <laughs> has. I remember me and Cleo were talking about this the other day. How when we were in film at U of W, our teacher sort of spe- special like gave special treatment to this one student who was very talented. We all think he's talented, but was like, yeah, well, like he didn't he didn't have to apply for film two, and none of us applied for film two because we were too afraid. We thought it was like this. It was reserved for like boys who were really good at it. Like mm. there was no girls in that class, and so we just thought we didn't belong there, that we couldn't be there unless we were better than everybody else and because we hadn't submitted to festivals or because we weren't confident showing screening our movies or because we'd never, like, had the guts to go out and just continue to make movies in our spare time and, like, ask for people's time and ask for people to help on set because we didn't think we could command that kind of space, then we thought, oh, we shouldn't even be applying for these classes because, like, we don't deserve to take up a seat in that class. And then so for these teachers to be like, you don't even have to apply. You can just go in there. And uh, for them to they that teacher also bought that guy a membership to the Winnipeg Film Group so he would continue to make movies. And like that kind of treatment, like look to the girls in your class, like look for the girls who care, look for the girls who are like nervous to put themselves out there and like push them, be like, you can do this, too. You know, I'm just so frustrated by teachers who don't understand their responsibility to make the women in their class feel included in this world that is so, like, sort of inclined to sexism. Yeah, it's kind of difficult for the, like, don't treat them any differently from the men, but still, Mm -hmm. like, build them up like you do the men, because then you, like, if you start overthinking it, like, I'm putting myself in the instructor's shoes here, you don't want to treat them differently, but you still want to build them up. It's kind Mm -hmm. of a difficult balance. But I think that there's definitely a consciousness that needs to be there. It's no different than uh, white people having to understand their privilege and, like, understand how they have are given different you were born into different opportunity and you have to be conscious of that because it means that you if you're conscious of it you can create a shift in that world so that it doesn't have to be 
Um, you don't have to be, con it doesn't have to continue down that racist path and, and our society doesn't have to continue down a sexist path either. So if we're all conscious of it, then hopefully as we go forward, the like future generations of women will just continue to see um, a platform where they're considered a peer. Yeah. I, I really like that a lot of Lash's films are, are actually women focused. Like mm -hmm. the latest one, um, we retitled it, it used to be last year's, now it's Picture Day 2002, <laughs> is um, about this girl who's... Um, hid her school pictures in the fridge, which in itself is just, like, such a weird move because it means you're hiding them, but you're also wanting your mom to run across them because they're in the fridge. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I, the psychology of that move is, is hilarious. Um, and it's actually playing at Cinematheque on November 25th as part of the member screening. And you should go because it's really cool. It really exhibits some of Lash's talents in lighting and color and uh, cinematography. It's really beautiful. Yeah, the cinematographer is Dylan Bailey, oh, but sorry. she has a lot of input too. <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> Credits to Dylan. <laughs> but yeah, but Lash is the director and the main actor, right? Yeah, and has a lot mm -hmm. of like the behind ideas that push the cinematography forward right okay and so for now oh by the way the winnipeg uh film and tv network uh, or tv and film network however it's said uh they meet once a month and they're going to have a december meeting so oh, check yes. check them out uh on facebook or do they have a website um, they have a Facebook page okay. that's semi-active, but they also, like, if you just email, like, uh, Monica from the Winnipeg Film Group, she tends to organize it and sends out, like, email blasts and also, like, invites you to the events on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And next one will be kind of a special one because we'll be kind of coming with either just general script ideas that you want to workshop and get feedback on or a, a, a three to five minute short film idea that you think that Women's TV and Film Network could potentially make just in the art space building, working together and being cool kids. Yeah. Uh, and also, uh, locally, in your home and in the theaters, you can go to the theater and see Lady Bird now, which we're super excited about. We have two mm -hmm. friends in our class who just watched it last night because they're reviewing it for their podcast. Do we know um, what the podcast is called? Could we? I don't it? remember. Sorry, Tony and Luke. Um, <laughs> But uh, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> Don't listen <laughs> to our podcast. <laughs> um, but they just watched Lady Bird. They said it was phenomenal. Tony is a Rotten Tomatoes critic, and he ranks it as <laughs> one of the top movies of the year. Um, so definitely check that one out. Greta Gerwig's directorial debut, and we're really excited about it because we love Greta, Ger Greta Gerwig. Mm -hmm. um, and then Mudbound by Dee Reese, a uh, director that we've mentioned previously, I think in our third episode. Yeah. Um, she directed Mudbound, and it is now out on Netflix. <laughs> yep. Um, and so that was our fifth episode. Uh, thank you for listening. If you want us to keep talking about movies, if you want to keep getting recommendations for lists, uh, we're happy to keep up the Twitter page. Just let us know that you like it or that you're watching or listening or uh, reading. So let send us, us a tweet. Exist. Let us know you exist and we'll keep putting up material for you because we love to research women in film. Mm -hmm. It's been an awesome uh, to, a way to force us to get to know more of the women in the film industry. Yeah, I think that for both of us, this started out as an assignment that was just a requirement, and both of us gravitated towards material that we care a lot about, and it's hard for us to wait until the podcast to talk about these things, because yeah. we have so much to say about the movies we're watching, we're so excited about the women that are working, and the work that we're seeing, and so, uh, yeah, it's been really enjoyable, and I want to keep doing something like this to push forward and dig deeper and on and on and on to find more and more work from women that are great at it. Um, okay, so... Thanks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>